Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, listeners, we're taking a week off to record and write new episodes coming at you soon, so we're re- releasing this old episode. This episode is particularly relevant because the coming series will reference all of these reproductive histories. So, uh, enjoy! Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the women's rights movement began to turn its attention more directly at birth control. For such a long time, the focus of feminism had been on winning the right to vote. And there was some debate within the movement itself over what to focus on. Today, in the second episode of our Women's Reproductive Health series, we will be talking about the birth control movement, Margaret Sanger, and abortion in the early 20th century. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. So like I said, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, the women's rights movement was starting to turn its attention more specifically at birth control. Um, For a very long time, the women's rights movement had been focused explicitly on winning the right to vote. And now the the movement was having some internal debate over what the main priority of women's rights activism should be. Should we focus our energies on the vote or do we need reproductive control over our own bodies before we can even use the right to vote? Like, would it be useful to us if we can't um, even get to the polls because we have so many children at home? Right. They viewed women's control of their reproduction as an elemental cornerstone of self-determination and a way to overcome the subjugation of women in society. And this rested on respect in marriage and laws that protected women from marital rape. A woman's right to refuse sex from her husband was fundamental to her independence and her personhood. During the 1870s, the term early feminists used was voluntary motherhood. Now, not all feminists agreed that birth control was the right thing to advocate for. 
But almost all agreed that abortion was a complete no-no, although people obviously were still having them in high numbers, as we've been talking about throughout this series. In fact, many called for voluntary motherhood through contraception as a means of preventing abortion. Also, we should point out that at the beginning, most feminists did not advocate the use of prophylactics, herbs, teas, or other things, but instead advocated for celibacy between couples and the right for a woman to refuse sex to her husband. So early feminist agitation for birth control advocated for periodic or permanent abstinence, either through the mutual decision of the couple or the sole decision of the woman. By the 1890s and the turn of the century, mainstream feminists began arguing that sexual intercourse was a form of marital communication to be enjoyed by both parties. This was a concept that grew more slowly as many suffragists and mainstream feminists were operating within the realm of respectability, using arguments that did not push the bounds of proper womanhood outside of respectable norms. But ideas about sexuality were changing, overcoming the Victorian ideology that women's sexual functions were only tied to maternal instinct, not pleasure, and that only men experienced sexual desire. It is important to remember, however, that this sexual communication was still strictly within the bonds of marriage. Um, And this is kind of an interesting side note. So we often refer to the Victorians as as Puritan in their sexual beliefs, meaning that they were very prudish about sex. Right, right. But the Puritans actually advocated for mutual sexual pleasure between a husband and a wife. So husbands were actually instructed to bring their wives to orgasm. Um, Good sex was a way to strengthen the God-given bonds of marriage and husbands you know, were often instructed to pleasure their wives to have a a mutual pleasurable sex life. That's really fascinating. Yeah. It's also really interesting that we have all of these, we have all of these ideas about the Victorians and and sexuality, right? And one of them is that the Victorians never talked about sex (laughs) when actually, as Foucault tells us, they literally never stopped talking about sex, right? They were obsessed with it. Right, so, right. That's my Foucauldian uh, aside. But there we go. We can do a whole episode. Of oh, that. sure. <laughs> <laughs> Voluntary motherhood was a pro-motherhood ideology that upheld the belief that a woman's primary function and joy in life was in being a mother. They were not advocating for no children or no marriage, but for well-spaced children when the woman was well enough to do so. It's important for us to separate this from our 21st century idea of birth control as a way to just have unlimited sexual intercourse without any fear of pregnancy. This may help us to understand why most early feminists shunned external methods of contraception. Prostitutes were thought to have knowledge and use of these types of birth control methods, and wives and mothers needed to firmly separate themselves from prostitutes. During this period, a man was a man no matter who he had sex with. A woman was either a daughter, a wife, or a whore. Understanding this may help us to understand why the popular public push for external birth control did not gain a foothold until the early 20th century. So let's uh, jump back a little bit and talk again about the Comstock Act, which was passed in 1873. We touched on that a little bit in the first episode. The Comstock Act, which made it illegal to send obscene literature and articles of immoral use through the U.S. mail, uh, was, uh, I guess, spearheaded or brought about by Anthony Comstock, who helped write this law. And um, basically, he was sort of singularly obsessed with this law. Yeah, yeah. I, I have like a personal theory that Anthony Comstock was just like a freaky, kinky dude. And 
like self-hatred just like led him to this i, I have no evidence for like, that but that, wouldn't that, that sounds, be amazing if that was like true a really good hbo mini yeah yeah yeah, him, yeah you know like just beating yeah exactly and... yeah amazing <laughs> so this seems sort of silly to us today but this was a way of cracking down on quote-unquote immoral things like birth control and family planning manuals but also on things like sex toys and other kind of sexual paraphernalia yeah, and, you know, within advertising, before 1873, you could actually find pretty explicit advertising, say, for um, female syringes that would be for um, basically douching out sperm right. or, or, or inserting a spermicidal, you know, substance or whatever. And these, these advertisements would basically say, you know, this is for that purpose. After Comstock, you see the advertisements change and they become much more euphemistic. Mm-hmm. Um. Comstock's sort of tool of the trade for uh, for arresting people based on his law was entrapment. He would write to female syringe purveyors under a false name and then arrest whoever sent him the material. Dr. Sarah Chase was arrested in 1878 and held on a $1,500 bail, which at the in today's money would be something around $36,000. Um, and she was kept at the Tombs Prison in New York City for selling Comstock just two syringes. So regardless of laws prohibiting the dissemination of birth control, women were still using it anyway. And I think that's the thing that we just want to keep reiterating. Yeah. That even though these things became illegal, women still found them. They still used them, right? Mm-hmm. Records from early birth control clinics show that almost 90% of first-time visitors had previously used birth control of some type. Yeah, and 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 that again kind of brings home that that idea that you know women were using using these things and using these techniques regardless. Um, birth rates were falling, and by 1900, most women were only having an average of 3.2 children, as compared to 7.4 a century before. And this was a continuation of a process that had been in progress in America since the the era of the American Revolution. Right. Yep. Um, But as mentioned previously, condoms, pessaries, tampons, douches, herbs, and chemicals were all being used to prevent pregnancy. Even Vaseline mixed with salicylic acid, which we most know as an acne treatment, um, was used as a spermicidal ointment. So even though mainstream feminism wasn't advocating for external contraceptives, they were being used in high numbers. And another part of birth control during this time was actually um, coitus interruptus, what we now know as, excuse me, but pulling out. Um, you know, this was this was uh, really the the most popular technique, but it did rely on a willing partner and extreme discipline. Also, <laughs> right. during the time, most doctors advised their male patients that it would result in impotence or neurotic disorders. So obviously quote, pulling out is, is not the best means right. of, and of, it doesn't, of birth control. It doesn't work particularly well either. Not particularly yeah. well. But this is this just just to give you the all encompassing view of how we're dealing with birth control. Um, th- this was actually a form of birth control. And, yeah. and I think it's hard for us in the 21st century to understand that convincing your husband to pull out is a big deal. Mm-hmm. That that shows that you have some control over your own um, autonomy, mm-hmm. really, and some power over your husband, right? To right. to convince him or to control him in that in in sexual matters, when it was considered that 
matters of sexuality were up to your husband, not up to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It's important to point out that although illegal, women who could afford the services of a private doctor had a higher likelihood of obtaining reliable contraception than women who had no access to a doctor or a knowledgeable midwife. So it was um, middle class and upper class women who had reliable access to to birth control methods and poor women and immigrant women and women of color who did not. Right. Um, and this is a theme that we will revisit, I think, throughout the rest of the series. Absolutely. Up until today. Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right. So something we should talk about that's going on around the, the turn of the century is this idea of, quote unquote, race suicide. Um, we touched on these briefly in episode one, but I think it's important to expand on it a little bit. Now, race suicide was a catchphrase used by those who feared the European stock of the nation was being overpowered by foreign blood. Right. We also have a series running right now on immigration. And one of our episodes, we talk about this idea of race suicide, the fear that degenerate or defective people were watering down this um, so-called pure Anglo-Saxon um, stock of the United States. Now, this really kind of um, hit a peak in 1905. President Theodore Roosevelt gave a speech to the National Congress of Mothers in which he deplored the use of birth control by the white Anglo-Saxon women or to keep up with the birth rate of ethnic minorities was to risk race suicide. Essentially, the use of birth control was anathema to American nationalism. So he's essentially calling these white Anglo-Saxon women traitors if they use birth control right, or if right. they don't produce as many children as ethnic minorities right. are. Right. They're contributing right? to the downfall of America. Right. Now, he didn't, Roosevelt didn't come up with this term. This fear had been prevalent since the Civil War era. But such a statement by such a popular president gave rise to what came to be known as the race suicide controversy. Right. And sort of a funny aside here, um, Harvard President Charles Eliot around the same time, lamented at one point that Harvard men were having too few children, kind of tapping into the same idea that if Harvard men are supposed to be the pinnacle of Americanness, right, and masculinity, but they were only having uh, one or two children. And he was kind of distressed by this. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, on the other hand, scoffed back that that was okay, since Harvard men made terrible fathers. (laughs) I just love that. Right. So the, 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 the subject is, you know, kind of popping up here and there and, 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 and really is on a, a lot of people's minds during the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what Roosevelt's words did really was in, embolden many feminists, maternalists and suffragists who had previously kept silent about birth control to speak out in favor of its use or at least to push back at it. Charlotte Perkins Gilman stated in a speech, quote, all this talk for and against and about babies is by men. One would think the men bore the babies. The women bear and rear the children. The men kill them. Then they say, we are running short of children. Make some more. What a powerful statement, especially in a, in a period of constant warfare and imperialism. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that point, I mean, something that we're not going to talk about a great deal, but the intersections here in the American feminist movement with the movements of American socialism and pacifism, right? All kind of... And imperialism. Right, absolutely, kind of all coming together. Yes. So in the early 20th century, we start to have the beginnings of a sexual revolution. Women started being intimate with men who were not their husbands. 
This, of course, ran the gamut from premarital sex, free love, or just petting and kissing before marriage. But things were changing. In the Victorian ideal, women were to have sex with only one man in their lives. And if they wanted to limit their family size, they could only have sex periodically. As sex became more understood as a normal human experience, not just an animal instinct of men, this Victorian ideal became more and more unacceptable. We often think of this as a product of the 1920s, uh, the so-called new woman, but there were earlier incarnations of this. A study in 1910 found that 43% of, of women interviewed enjoyed sex and even had regular orgasms, and 90% of couples used some form of family limitation or birth control. Right, so that was, that was in 1910s. In 1925, a study of married white middle-class New York women found that 30 out of 50 women born after 1890 had had premarital sex by only 17 out of 50 women born before 1890 had had premarital sex. And this was one of just many such studies that were supporting findings that women who came of age during the 1910s overwhelmingly were participating in sexual acts outside or before the bonds of marriage. Right. And just, I mean, to kind of interrupt our flow here for a second, but what I think is really important to point out here is that we are constantly, constantly having conversations about um, the loosening of our sexual morals and how all of a sudden we're in this crisis of people having premarital sex. It's a constantly re-emerging argument. But what these statistics show us is that there was never really a moment in American history or in any country's history where people were perfectly not having premarital sex right. or not having sex outside of the bounds of marriage. That has never existed, no. right? This is a fiction that we tell ourselves that, like, there was this there moment was where America was, dare I say, great, um, <laughs> where, you know, everyone was perfect. Chaste and, and pure yeah, and, and, and waited until marriage. Held hands, you know, yes. chastely before they walked down the aisle. That's simply not true. That's not the case. But it's hard to think of your grandmother or your great-grandmother in the back of a um, you know, Model <laughs> T. Uh... That's amazing. What an amazing <laughs> image. Go, nanny, go. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Um, so we want to switch gears here a little bit to talk about one of the pioneering figures, not not the only figure, but one of the pioneering figures of the early 20th century birth control movement. And that is, of course, Margaret Sanger. Um, Margaret Sanger was born in 1879 to Anne Purcell Higgins and Michael Hennessy Higgins in Corning, New York. Um, they were Catholics, Irish Catholics, who believed strongly in the Bible's teaching that women or that couples were to increase and multiply, written in their family Bible above their, you know, the list of birth dates of all of their children was written, Lo, children are the heritage of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Anne Higgins, um, Maggie, as she was called, Maggie's mother, um, endured 18 pregnancies in 30 years. Oh she had 11 live births and seven miscarriages I, I can't i mean i can't imagine that sounds like seven hell. i mean i can't imagine 11 births but i also can't imagine seven miscarriages that mm -hmm. must have just been um both physically and psychologically taxing yeah. right yeah so maggie sanger as margaret sanger was called when she was a child and her brothers and sisters had to work really hard to keep their household solvent 
As historian Jean H. Baker writes, Maggie, quote, tended to her younger sister Ethel and then to four younger brothers who were born in quick succession. She stirred the big pot of soup that simmered on the wood stove and sustained the Higgins children. She helped her mother with the extra laundry taken in to supplement the family income, and she even cleaned up the afterbirth when her youngest brother was born. So she was really intimately familiar with what it meant for her mother to have these 11 children and mm-hmm. and being really, as one woman, unable to take care of all of them, right? Oh, she yeah. relied on her other children to raise the youngest ones. Right. This repeated childbearing and nursing took its toll on Anne's health. And when her youngest child was only six years old, she died of tuberculosis. Maggie's older sisters all had to leave home to find work to help sustain the household. They, they moved out, but they sent money home to keep the household going, particularly after their mother died. And this actually ended up working in Margaret's favor because her older sisters had even more reason to work extra and to make sure that Maggie could get an education. They were... Um, disappointed that they themselves had lost that opportunity. So they made extra sure that they could provide that opportunity for Margaret. Mm. Um, She was very clever and she loved school. And this maybe is a little bit of an aside, but I thought this was just so wonderful. In her autobiography, Sanger describes smashing, Mm. which was a 19th century term for these intense, generally but not always platonic romantic crushes. I say platonic and romantic, meaning that they weren't necessarily sexual in nature but they were romantic romantic in an antique sort of sense Mm -hmm. right that um girls would have with each other while at school and later on she said that she thought that such experiences with women's only spaces and women's relationships were critical to girls development into mature capable and confident women you know and in just an aside to that linda gordon actually argues that this kind of early 20th century um, sexual revolution that we just mentioned actually was one of the nails in the coffin for this 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 type of mm-hmm. close female bonding. Mm. Um, because now, you know, women would go on dates with men unchaperoned. You know, they Interesting. You know, it wasn't just a complete separation of the sexes and women went to went girl schools and boys went to boys schools. And, and so this kind of... Um, idea of smashing or these these intense female relationships that were crushes and romantic and all of these things kind of wound up together yeah, yeah. actually starts to dissipate with that sexual evolution because now women don't only need to be with other women. They don't need to rely on other women for that emotional connection. Absolutely. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I love the idea of smashing. I think it's so, so interesting. When their mother died, however, um, Maggie's older sisters, Nan and Mary, one of whom, I think Mary, lived in Buffalo, which is kind of exciting. I didn't know that. Cool. Um, They could no longer afford to support her schooling. They they had to send money home instead to support their father. And so, and add to that, that someone was needed to help actually physically be present in the house in Corning to help raise the little ones that were still at home with their father. She and her father didn't get along particularly well, and they clashed to the point where she was eventually kicked out of the house for failing Mm -hmm. to make her curfew one night. Her father was not very happy that she had boyfriends and that she went out in the evenings. She was very much a part of this early 20th century new woman. 
movement or yeah, ethos at, or at, something. At, at the kind of, I mean, and she's a little bit before we really think of that, like totally happening. Right. But, yeah. You know, those, those numbers are always a kind of an average. Yeah. You know? and, and so, I mean, I think also maybe that kind of shows that she's a little bit ahead of her time. Yeah, or, sure. Yeah. You know, she pushes boundaries a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that this, the idea of the new woman was maybe less revolutionary in the 1920s right. than we like to think that it was. Yeah. Or 1910s even. Yeah. She was very unhappy when she lived at home with her father. Um, she felt trapped, and she was glad for this excuse to leave. Uh, when she left, she entered nursing school. In 1902, uh, she married William Sanger, who was an architect, and she gave up nursing school, partly because of her marriage, but also because she was continuously sick. She was having these recurring bouts of really severe illness, and so she had gotten a bad case of tonsillitis, and in her tonsils, pockets of infection had developed. And in those pockets of infection was kind of hiding the um, germ that carries tuberculosis. Mm. And so it would kind of continuously reemerge in her system. And this sickness wasn't completely cleared up for 20 years until she finally had her tonsils removed. Wow. Today, we're like, dude, just get your tonsils out. But, you know, totally different time, right? Yeah. They didn't understand yeah. or they didn't know how to how to um, diagnose that. So even through her sickness, she bore three children. Each of the births was difficult and painful. And though she never explicitly connected that publicly to her activism, some historians suggest that it did make an impact on her voluntary motherhood platform. She became a housewife and a mother during this period of her life, and though doctors warned her that further pregnancies could risk her life because of her illness, um, she defied them after her first child. She had a, a terrible bout of this sickness after her first child, um, but uh, when she was told not to have any more children, I think that kind of kicked yeah. off the defiance in Margaret Sanger, and she was like, I'll show you, and then yeah. she had two more. Okay. After her children were born... Her husband left his steady job and the family, uh, because of their um, limited income, was forced to move back into New York City from the suburbs. Sanger went back into nursing and worked going into poor and immigrant women's homes, generally providing obstetrical services. That was sort of her specialty as a nurse. And it was here that she became familiar with the struggles of women who felt as though they were trapped by their reproductive systems. Such women had little to no access to means of limiting their family size. One woman told her, it's the rich who know the tricks while we have all the kids. Sort of sums up what we were saying earlier about who had access to these means of limitation mm -hmm. and who did not. Mm -hmm. Most eye-opening for her was a an experience where a young woman called on a doctor after she got an infection from a botched abortion. She already had several children. And she asked what she could do to prevent another pregnancy, to avoid having to just have another uh, illegal abortion. The doctor laughed at her derisively and said, you just want to have your cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. A few months later, Sanger was called to the house again because the young woman had once again sought an illegal abortion, but this time she had died of septicemia. It was then, according to her own writings, that Sanger decided to undertake what she called her revolution. She became politically active and joined the Socialist Party, where she was in good company of other female radicals like Emma Goldman, Elizabeth Gurley Brown, and Jesse Ashley. 
In the beginning, she was not just focused on birth control, but instead on a variety of women's issues. Rape, domestic violence, sexual liberation, women's liberation, and others. In 1914, she began publishing a magazine called The Woman Rebel. The masthead of it, I just love. No gods, no masters. Mm -hmm. It's like so badass for 1914, if I can say. Uh, Even though she was careful not to disseminate birth control advice in The Woman Rebel... It nevertheless received the ire of the U.S. Postal Service, who were charged with ensuring the Comstock law was upheld. And, of course, unsurprisingly, the woman rebel was declared obscene. In 1914, she wrote a a pamphlet called Family Limitation, which was very explicit. It was um, specifically, or it was giving specific birth control and family limitation advice. And she wrote it partly to disseminate that advice, but also to draw the ire of the Comstock agents, right? She did it purposely to conflict with Comstock. They were, Sanger and others were constantly trying to, like, bring on the the um, furor of the mm-hmm. Comstock agents. Uh, she, knowing that she would most likely be arrested for publishing it, she fled the country and then instructed her friends at home to publish the pamphlet on her behalf. In the meantime, her husband, William, was jailed for passing a copy of the pamphlet directly to a Comstock agent, like really asking for it. And then because of this, her children, you know, she was out of the country. Her husband was in jail. Her children were sent to boarding schools. During this time, her daughter, her youngest child, Peggy, became very, very sick um, and eventually died. Much has been made out of this, that Sanger loved abortions, but she neglected her own children. You hear this really often in um, criticisms of Sanger and of organizations like Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the death of Peggy crushed her and haunted her for her entire life. Um, She was deeply, deeply troubled by this she was present when peggy died so it's not as though she just abandoned her children and they died on you know on the street or something um she regularly dreamt about peggy and believed that her spirit came to her in dreams and she regularly um on her birthday on peggy's birthday and on the date that peggy died held seances hoping to commune with Mm. her spirit in 1916 she opened a birth control clinic in brooklyn And on the first day, 100 women and 20 men waited in line to be seen. By the time it closed, just a few weeks later, 500 patients had been enrolled. And she said of this, nothing, not even the ghost of Anthony Comstock could have kept them away. Anthony Comstock had just died um, a few months before. Ten days later, oh, I said weeks, but yeah, it was not even really weeks. It was just over a week. Yeah. Yeah. Ten days later, a woman came in and asked for birth control. Sanger met with her uh, and prescribed her some, but it turned out she was actually an undercover policewoman who returned to the clinic and arrested Sanger and her sister, Ethel Byrne. Byrne was convicted quickly, was convicted first, and sent to a workhouse where she went on a hunger strike and was the first woman in the United States to be force-fed on a hunger strike. She was determined to keep going with her hunger strike, but Sanger intervened by testifying that Byrne would never break the law again, which resulted resulted in Byrne being released. And um, according to Jill Lepore, anyway, Byrne never forgave her for that. She was mm. determined to die and yeah. have that be on the hands of the United States government. Mm. Um, 
Sanger herself was convicted a few days later and spent 30 days in jail. And I just want to interject here for a moment, because a lot of the times when we talk about 20th century birth control, we really focus on Margaret Sanger. Yeah. Um, And I, I first want to point out that in Margaret's early career, when she was part of the socialist movement, you know, the... The Socialist Party never um, made birth control a platform, but many members of the Socialist Party right. and that movement were already advocating for birth control. Right. Um, so, she, you know, she, although she was a pioneer, she was one of, of many women, as as you kind of pointed yeah, out, yeah. Who, who were arrested and jailed for, for passing out, um, you know, birth control paraphernalia and, and uh, pamphlets and things like this. Yeah, too. she and Ethel Byrne were not alone in being arrested for this. Yeah. 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 And then also here, when we're getting into kind of the 1910s and early 1920s, when Margaret Sanger is starting her birth control um, clinics, you know, this this is in the papers. Um, and talk about birth control is already in the papers and it's already happening through, you know, female lines of communication. But you know, it, it's it's in the ether, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, this isn't just something that's kind of um, relegated to the to the cities or to immigrant communities or things like that. This is this is happening all over America, mm-hmm. and women are reading about the birth control um, debate in papers and magazines. So even if they weren't in a metropolitan area, they were still seeking information on birth control. Right. Um, the government-run Children's Bureau was founded in 1912. Um, it began receiving letters from mothers all over the nation who were desperate for information on birth control. Um, but because it was illegal and the Children's Bureau had their own issues with the American Medical Association, basically calling them purveyors of socialist medicine and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the children's... Sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Children's Bureau doesn't want to be giving out birth control information. They are a government entity, so let's not break the law, the law here, right? Right. But, you know, you can look in the Children's Bureau's records and, and see these these letters of women writing into them. And I, I wanted to read you one. One woman wrote in for information on birth control, and she said, quote, I have children so fast it is wrecking my life. You know, so again, it sounds like Sanger's mother. It sounds mm-hmm. like these women sh- that she's experiencing, um, you know, in these communities. And another woman wrote in, quote, Now, what I want to know is why can't we poor people be given birth control as well as doctors and the rich people that could provide for and doctor their families? We need help to prevent any more babies. After the next one comes, I'm going to seek advice and if possible, so we can live more happy. Don't you think it better to be parents of three, which we are willing to work and do all we can for them, to raise and provide food for us all, than to have to have six or more for poverty to take and be motherless? I think it unfair that doctors and rich seek birth control and poor can't seek nothing, only poverty and more babies, end quote. Yeah, and I, and I, I love that quote because she's not saying... You know, I don't want to have any children. I don't want to be married. I just want to have, you know, I just want to be promiscuous and whatever. Um, A lot of these women, at least during this time period, most women in America were just looking for family limitation, Mm -hmm. right? They wanted Mm -hmm. to be able to provide for the children they already had. And to to care for their health. Yeah. Yeah. I think, too, we need to kind of keep pressing that, like... You know, having a baby is not a walk in the park for many women. It, no. it takes a toll on your body, especially repeat pregnancies, and especially as you get 
older yeah. and older and older. And I think, too, about a lot of these women probably had intimate experience with their mothers, their grandmothers, their sisters, mm-hmm. their aunts, their friends who died in childbirth or who experienced great pain or sickness because of repeated pregnancy. So this was something that they lived, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't just – this was not just rhetoric. This isn't theory. This yeah. Is, this is practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to come back to, um, Sanger for a moment, um, before we move on, I I just want to kind of bring us up to sort of more or less the end of her career. Um, during World War I, she published the Birth Control Review. During her time writing this magazine, she wrote an essay about eugenics or using selective breeding to create a quote unquote better race. Uh, and just to be clear... Eugenics is indefensible. Sanger's uh, appropriation of eugenics is indefensible, right? Um, eugenics is um, something that has been roundly and and appropriately so rejected. But it was also a product of its time, right? Mm-hmm. Sanger was there tapping into something that many of the public in- intellectuals of the day all agreed on eugenics right. on both sides of the political aisle, right? It was educated, a, respected, yes, cutting yeah. edge science. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- this was forward thinking. This was progressive thinking. This was the. This was not um, fringe radicals, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to think about that with a lot of nuance. Her kind of embrace of this, and it's been taken out of context i think often and people try to argue that sanger was advocating for some sort of uh genocide of people of color and that that's really i mean she was not a flawless person by any means um Mm -hmm. but but that that's also not accurate um she also helped to found the american birth control league in 1921 resisting efforts to join forces with mary ware dennett's national birth control league uh, Sanger was sort of a control freak, and she liked to get credit for things. She even sort of took her sister's story about being jailed and the hunger strike and all that and sort of pretended later in her life that that was actually her. Mm-hmm. Um, she also took her younger sister's birth date and started pretending that she was considerably younger than she actually was. <laughs> I mean, she she was a very interesting lady, and she liked to get credit for things. You know, she liked to be known as the mother of this and not to share credit. So she and Mary Ware Dennett did not get along. Mm-hmm. And so they they clashed over the proper focus of the birth control movement, plus they just, on a personal level, didn't like each other at all. Mm. The mission statement of the American Birth Control League was this. We hold that children should be conceived in love, born of the mother's conscious desire, and only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent contraception, except when these conditions can be satisfied. This is... The birth control movement saying that they're talking about motherhood. They're not talking about women not marrying, um, being independent, being child free, right? Mm -hmm. This is all still um, couched within what were deemed appropriate female roles. Within the realm of respectability for women. But on the the other hand, I mean, this was radical stuff. I mean, this was freaking people out. But 
they're still working within this kind of domestic sphere, you know, that mm-hmm. that, that it, 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 it's within the mother's realm or the woman's realm exactly. to, to, still be yeah. a, to still be a mother. It just has to be in these safe confines. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. I mean, even to say that children should be conceived in love, mm-hmm. born of a mother's conscious desire, I mean, that's pretty radical language, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. talking about women's desire and women's, um, you know, uh, sexual pleasure, mm-hmm. um, ex- sort of implicitly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty radical. And then what we remember Sanger perhaps most for now is in 1946, she helped to found the International Committee on Planned Parenthood, which developed into the Planned Parenthood organization that we know today, which was focused on family planning, birth control, and women's health. Um, and as a side note, Planned Parenthood did not provide abortion services at all until after Roe v. Wade in the 1970s. As an aside, um, it, the Comstock laws, uh, the we're back to them. Again. <laughs> back to the Comstock laws. Um, in 1936, the Comstock laws were finally overturned in a court case called. This is my favorite court case name, mm-hmm. I think ever. U.S. versus one package of Japanese pessaries. Um, a birth control method, obviously, pessaries. We've mentioned a couple times. These, uh, or this one package of Japanese pessaries, had been ordered by Hannah Stone, who was a doctor at one of Sanger's clinics, in order, specifically in order to provoke a court case over the availability of birth control. Soon after, the American Medical Association voted to consider contraceptives a normal medical service. And, of course, um, U.S. v. one package of Japanese pessaries killed the Comstock law. They ruled that, you know, it was not obscene to send these materials through the mail. So, so sorry, Anthony Comstock. Actually, sorry, not sorry. And, you know, I think the fact that um, we do have finally, like, a Supreme Court case, usually Supreme Court cases of that magnitude come after a national change in thought yes you know so that kind of reflects these these changing sexual norms and these changing thoughts about sex you know as as we were speaking of you know women's sexual experience in the 1910s you know 1920s right you know so now we're at 1936 like those women are now you know 40 and 50 years old that had sex when they were teenagers you know like times have changed and particularly world war one happening right in that period too which was you know many men um, being provided with condoms overseas right Mm -hmm, absolutely you know what let me give you a little little statistic actually um it's it's an interesting note on condom usage um so as as we mentioned earlier maybe in the first episode condoms um were made from animal material like animal intestines and skins um and Mm -hmm. they had been available for millennia Mm -hmm. Uh, rubber condoms had been available since the been available since the mid 19th century. Now the VD epidemic of World War One forced many soldiers to learn how to use them. A study in Baltimore found that two to three million condoms were commercially sold before World War One, and six point two five million were sold in Baltimore in the mid 1920s. So essentially, finding that before after World War One, condom sales doubled. Right. All right. So. Let's let's start talking again about abortion a little bit, because during all of this time, abortions are still happening. They are still illegal. 
And in the early part of the 20th century, um, dying declarations, um, so basically getting, you know, women's kind of deathbed um, confessions, mm -hmm. death confessions, uh, became the, the crucial piece of evidence in the policing of illegal abortions up until about the 1930s. Uh, women admitted to hospitals due to complications from illegal abortions were interrogated, often, with, with, often near death, about their abortions because poor women were forced to use cheap and dangerous self-induced measures or inexpensive but unreputable abortionists, they were more likely to end up in the hospital with these complications. These women were questioned about intimate details of their sexual life by male police, physicians, and hospital staff in order to provide prosecutors with information about abortionists. Doctors became an arm of the state in pursuing the criminalization of abortion, Yet not all of them agreed with the merging of medicine in the state. Dr. William Robinson lectured that, quote, The business of the doctor is to relieve pain, not to act as a bloodhound for the state. End quote. The dying declarations compromised the private relationship doctors had with their patients, and many physicians refused to cooperate with the state in such matters. Investigations into abortion-related deaths also caused pain and embarrassment for the women's families. Police visited the houses on both sides of Frances Collins' house, as well as ladies from her old neighborhood, after her abortion-related death, in order to determine if someone knew who her abortionist was. The coroner asked Marshall Hostetler about his deceased girlfriend. When did you become intimate with her? Have any relations with her? How many times? Where did it occur? So really intimate questions that people are not comfortable answering, right? Um, newspapers hungry for scandalous stories would print the names and intimate details of women who had illegal abortions. Mm -hmm. Papers would sometimes hint that police had uncovered lists of women who had abortions when they confiscated an abortionist's records during raids. The threat of public shaming exposes the great agency women showed when seeking out an abortion. By controlling elements of their reproduction, women defined how they engaged in the public sphere by choosing when, how, and why they would have their children, sometimes at great peril to their health and their reputation. Mm -hmm. There's also this kind of controversy over physicians, particularly female physicians, when they perform abortions, um, because it's the earliest days also of women physicians, women being doctors. The book that I'm thinking of is earlier than the 1930s. I think it's actually in the 19th century. But um, there's a great book by Regina Morantz Sanchez called Conduct Unbecoming a Woman. And it's all about this huge public spectacle and trial of a woman who, a female doctor, who was accused of um, murdering women who came to her um, trying to get illegal abortions. So it, it goes for the doctors as well, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I hope that makes and, sense. And again, another woman kind of like stepping out of her place. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and sort of a double crime there. Right. Being a public figure as a doctor, right? Kind of wresting power out of the hands of male physicians and also performing abortions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Great Depression marked a massive upsurge in abortion rates for both working and upper class women. One young teacher whose fiance was unemployed became pregnant. Her quote-unquote choices were not really choices at all. She could marry her fiancé and lose her job, as married women were routinely fired on the assumption that jobs should go to men. 
um, and keep the baby but have no means of support because he was unemployed. Mm-hmm. Or she could have the baby, still possibly lose her job, and either keep the baby or put the baby up for adoption. So no choice was a good choice. Um, her fiancé found a local physician who gave her an abortion at his office. Two years later, she married a different man and had seven children. Another woman, um, E.M., had three abortions in Depression-era Montana during the first years of her married life. E.M. and her husband wanted to postpone childbearing because they felt a moral obligation to be able to provide for their children. Through the use of cold water or turpentine douches, condoms, diaphragms, and abortions, they were able to postpone their family for 10 years. With the help of a male family pharmacist, E.M. obtained two abortions from a woman in a nearby town that she did that she had deduced was a prostitute. Both were done with the insertion of a catheter and sterile packing with gauze or cotton of the uterus. The third abortion she obtained with the help of a neighboring ranch woman who inserted a sharpened stick of slippery elm purchased at the local pharmacy into her uterus and left for several hours. The slippery elm swelled, causing the cervix to dilate and subsequently caused contractions and a miscarriage. Slippery elm was commonly used. Very commonly used. And as uh, she purchased it at a local pharmacy. Which is really interesting. Yes. Again, we talk about this being um, like the most taboo subject, the most illegal, um, but it hasn't always been... Right. I mean, it's, well, it, it's so it's, so it's taboo, but it's yeah. but it's unspoken. Right. You know, it, and it's um, probably that slippery elm was not being sold in a basket that was labeled like DIY abortion, abortion right? supplies. It was probably yes. being advertised as for some other purpose. Absolutely. But people knew what it was for. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and that, that reminds me of this quote. Um, that one anonymous medical commentator um, was asked in 1920 if public opinion in the United States sanctioned abortion. Mm. And um, uh, he, I'm, and this person, this medical commentator, concluded that it did, quote, within the bounds of discreet secrecy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. I think that answers that question right, quite, quite right. poignantly, right? Um, Physician abortionists performed tens of thousands of abortions in major cities and small towns throughout the 1930s. Dr. Josephine Gabler performed over 18,000 abortions at her Chicago office between 1932 and 1941. That comes out to five a day, seven days a week. The increased visibility and availability of abortions brought a severe crackdown on physician abortionists who had been operating with relative impunity and with a large referral system up until that time. These physician abortionists also practiced in a relatively gray area as all state laws on abortion had provisions that allowed for medically necessary therapeutic abortions performed by a licensed physician. These therapeutic abortions would increasingly come under fire in the 1940s and the 1950s. I think it's also important to point out that in the 1940s and the 1950s, we have a crackdown on a whole lot of things in American culture as the Mm -hmm. kind of first or second red scare. Increased pressure to conform the kind of increasing conservative push push yeah yeah Yeah. Um, so this kind of um second crackdown after the 30s when you know the 30s i i don't want to say it was sanctioned but maybe it was more understood as okay you know that that families are in in dire mm -hmm. financial straits right it was uncontrollable maybe you didn't like it 
but it was going to happen. Right, right. Um, and again, I think this points us toward um, we have a tendency to think that history is a straight line <laughs> of continual progression towards liberalization or progress, right? And this shows us that that's not the case because Absolutely. there we have a, a sort of sexual liber- liberation in the early part of the 20th century, a move towards birth control, and then you have a retraction of that in the mm-hmm. 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a con- continuing sort of Ebb back and, and flow. forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Good. Um, So raids on physician abortion offices intensified substantially during the 40s and the 50s as the second Red Scare increasingly ratcheted up conservative powers. So so, too, did it increase the regulation of women's bodies. Raids on abortion practices again became commonplace. A particular raid in 1947 on abortion practice picked up eight women as they left the office. The women were each required to submit to a gynecological exam where the police doctor removed the rubber catheter that had been earlier inserted by the abortionist. Oh my gosh, talk about invasive. Yeah. Wow. Later, when police entered the office, they found the abortionist working on a patient. They arrested the abortionist and took the patient and all office records with patient names to the police station. So just straight up interrupted this medical practice mm-hmm. because again we should point out that there were there there were gray areas in the law where a therapeutically necessary abortion was legal by a licensed physician mm-hmm. so these licensed physicians are um providing what they determine as therapeutically necessary abortions right, right? right um hospitals became important regulators in the state's attempt to suppress abortions Review boards were established at most hospitals. These consisted of a panel of doctors who acted as gatekeepers to safe and legal abortions. Physicians had to petition the review board and provide medical details on why they thought a therapeutic abortion was needed. These boards acted as a deflection to increased legal scrutiny. Also, therapeutic abortion committees provided a way for more conservative physicians to impose their views on their colleagues, thus making therapeutic review boards increasingly conservative in their medical assessments. And so that kind of leaves us off right in the 1950s. We're going to go into the 1960s and talk about um, the abortion debate kind of leading up to Roe v. Wade. In, oh, sorry. Well, in episode three. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm I, Elizabeth. And I'm Sarah. I'm Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek. And I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Please follow us on all social media. Follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast apps. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. You can find show notes and further reading as well as the archive for the History Buffs podcast at digpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Doctor. Doctor? <laughs> that comes out to five a day, seven a week. The increase. Seven vis- days a week. Seven days a week. Yeah. What did I say? Five a day, seven a week. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are we recording now? It looks like it's working. Lava, 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 lava. Okay, let's um. Notifications. How now, brown cow? It looks like it's recording, okay? Okay. Okay.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.